Donna's up first. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Beautiful day, it looks like today. It's going to be another beautiful day in the neighborhood, that's for sure. Yes, and thank God. Yes. What I need to find out is uh, I have a volunteer pecan tree that has come up in the flower bed. Okay. And it's about two inches in diameter, and I know that this is uh, the ideal time uh, to transplant. Right. And I was wondering, how much of the taproot do you have to get uh, for a tree that size? Most of it. You need to probably go down at least 24 inches if you can. Is that Uh, all? Uh, yes, um, I, that's a long way, though. I mean, oh, okay. two feet two feet is a long way to dig down. Are you in an area where you have pretty deep soil, or do you have shallow soil and rock? Uh, it's deep soil. Okay, then it's, it's up to you. Um, the nice thing about pecans is if you get a lot of that, it's not a true taproot, but we call it that because it is very much the same in structure and function. But if you can get a large amount of that, then you don't have to have a really huge root ball. Now, uh, it sure would be nice if you'd done this a year ago or two years ago and because a two-inch two inch diameter tree is a pretty good-sized tree. And they're, you know, I, I'm going to give you probably about a 50-50 chance that it's going to survive. But even if you got a four-foot taproot, then I'd still probably give you about a 50-50 chance that it will survive. I love what old Eddie Fannick that started Fannick's Nursery years ago. In fact, I think the sign is still up over there. It says pecan trees are difficult to transplant and some losses should be expected. So do the best you can if you feel that it's worth transplanting. But if you go down 24 inches, and remember, that's close to, uh, that's not a whole lot lower than counter height. So it's going to involve digging quite a hole. And if you're in soil, you can go a little deeper. The deeper, the better. But I don't think you really increase your chances a great deal if you go beyond two feet down. But uh, transplant it. Uh, remember that pecan trees do not like wet feet. When you get it in its new hole, and basically you just dig a post hole is what you're going to plant it into, um, you want to be careful that you don't keep that soil too wet around the base of the tree. In fact, years ago, uh, Alton Grimm is one of the smartest nurserymen I've ever known in my life. And we used to recommend to people when we sold bare root pecans that they actually fill the hole with perlite rather than soil just to be sure that things didn't stay too soggy wet. Now, if you're going to transplant a pecan, what you do, since you can't keep that soil overly moist, you want to keep it moist but not soggy wet. But if you would go out three times a day or ten times a day and take your hose and just spray up and down the trunk of that pecan tree for the next 30 to 45 days, the tree is able to absorb a lot of water directly through the bark. And that's what's going to make the difference in whether it survives and grows or not. So it's this is going to be some work. And like I say, there are no guarantees. But if you want to give it a shot, um, by all means, go for it. And um, should you, I guess, right away fertilize it with anything or just wait until it starts sprouting out you know i love using just the has to grow uh liquid plant food as a root stimulator uh if you want to add a little bit of garret juice to it that apple cider vinegar and seaweed and things that are in there seem to help but uh as far as you know regular dry fertilizer or anything like that uh sure if you want to put a handful of it in the bottom of the hole that's fine but uh, let's get it leafed out and growing, and then we'll start worrying about fertilizing uh, on a regular basis. 
Well, when you were talking about just uh, watering it, uh, you know, just water the outside, the uh, the root the system, tree, yeah, yeah, the 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 tree itself. Would it be good to maybe take has to grow and uh, in, in a mister or a uh, trigger spray bottle and just spray it and it would absorb that? Um, that would be good, but that is way down the scale of importance when you okay. compare it to moistening it just with water several times a day for you know the next several weeks. Having a little has to grow in there sure won't hurt anything. But it really doesn't add a whole lot at this point either. Okay. Well, wish us luck. Oh, absolutely. What kind of soil are you in? Is it sandy or is it clay? It's, it's sandy loam. Okay. Then then you probably won't have a problem with drainage. But uh, water, water it thoroughly when you do water the root system. But wait until you can stick your finger down in there about as deep as you can stick your finger. Wait until it feels dry that deep and then water the roots again. Okay. Okay. Well, good deal. Thank you very much. Let me know how it works out for you. All right, thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Donna. Bye-bye. All right, James is up next. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. How you doing? Oh, I'm good. How about you today? Uh, it's uh, another day to look forward to more tomato transplant. <laughs> a gardener's work is never done. Hey, I wanted to call you and give you a report on the... Uh, uh, Quonset hut style hoop house that uh, you know Johnny Seed's got the instructions on how to build. Yeah, so uh, covered with the five mil poly and then it's laced with uh, parachute cord. Uh huh. So far, uh, I think fifty, forty something, fifty mile an hour winds of all we've had out here, and it's made it through uh, all the winds that uh, that have been been coming through in the last few years. So that uh, that hoop house style that Johnny's is uh, promoting is uh, doing pretty good. I mean, you can hear it rattling, but it uh, oh yeah, it's still standing. <laughs> and it's uh, what a galvanized uh, steel tubes is what they're using for the frames yeah, on it. You just steal uh, steal the top rail off of Grandma's uh, fence <laughs> and bend them on a bender. Yeah, you have to buy a bender from them, but yeah, it's, re- it's real simple. Well, you can buy a bender, or if you. Know a good electrical supply. It's basically the same thing they use to uh, bend the metal conduit they use, and uh, they work real well. I mean, it's uh, it's amazing how it's sort of a learning curve. If you if you bend ten poles, I can promise you the tenth one's going to be a heck of a lot better than the first one is. But uh, it's anybody that has reasonable strength and you know a little bit of talent in construction of any sort. Uh, it's certainly it's certainly something most homeowners could do. Well, the thing is, uh, you're putting a hoop every five feet, so you can build it, you know, 20 foot long or 45 foot long exactly. or 125 foot long. It's whatever you you feel like growing. But uh, I just want to give you a report that uh, um, the winds haven't won yet. They might <laughs> one day, but uh, they haven't haven't beat it up yet. Well, I'm glad to hear. Did you put up roll up sides on yours, or do you have it? No. Uh, what you do is you just you just push the the poly up on the hoop yeah and then put a little uh, spring clamp on it to hold them open it's real simple stuff very good well i, I will 
take a look at it. I, I look at all the things that come from farm tech and, uh, they're just, there are some really clever greenhouse systems out there. And I'm glad you bring it up because I just would always encourage people stay away from the blasted internet. These little things made out of plastic pipe and all that a lot of folks end up buying because they don't know any better. It just doesn't cost much more to get a decent quality structure that's going to last for years. And I can promise you, you get one of those little those ones with plastic pipes to make a hoop house out of, and the first big wind, it's going to either be in Dallas or in Corpus. It's not going to be where you put it up. Well, that's a fact. Hey, uh, I was uh, getting ready for uh, like your real gardeners out there want to do spring carrots. Um, getting ready for carrots, getting the beds worked up to try to get a little weed germination going on before the the sixth. Yeah, I've been uh, ordering the. Uh, Pelletized seed from Johnny's. I was going to ask if you use pelletized or if you use seed tape. Carrot seed's so fine, it's just it's hard to spread it evenly, and uh, a pelletized seed sure does help on the the work of thinning. Bob, the plan the plan is you you get your four by eight bed, and you can grow a lot of carrots. But if you can uh, get that bed ready and uh, put a pipe down, step on it, get your little furrow, and set those little white pellets about every three inches. And cover them up with with sifted compost. Then uh, you don't have to thin anything. Yeah. So, and that's where I've seen most most young gardeners uh, fail because it right. it turns into a big carrot weed patch, and they just you know, <laughs> yeah, lots of tops and not much carrot. Do you do you grow the half longs, the Danvers, the Chantonay, the shorter carrots, or do you grow a long carrot? Okay, and I'm glad you asked that. In a raised bed, you can grow those yummy uh, nanties, you know, yep. those scarlets and uh, the really good, sweet hybrids. But right. if you're growing out in that old uh, garden that's rock hard, <laughs> you got to go with that Danvers. Yeah. Yep. Well, I always enjoy talking to a pro that's done it. You know, that's a problem with all these extension service people and all. They read what it says in the book or what they sent down from A&M or whatever, but so many of them haven't ever really gotten out and grown anything. And I tell kids and people that come to me saying, where should I go to school? What should I do to prepare myself for this? And I tell them, you know, go get an education that teaches you to think, but you will learn more the first month you're in this business and you'll learn in three or four years of college. So uh, uh, advice from people like you that have been there and done it is a whole lot better than reading, uh, as a friend of mine used to say, a book written to how to get to the top of the mountain written by somebody that's nobody that's ever been there. Well, go with those uh, pelletized seeds when it comes to comes to carrots and uh my opinion is if you can grow a, a bed of carrots you're uh you're a gardener you know, oh yeah that's, uh, that, that's a lot of work it is a lot of work but man the worth the uh the rewards are sure worth it what other seeds do you go with the pelletized seed besides carrots or they want okay, a few things uh, it's a full moon so i'm going to be putting down a couple of trays of uh soil block lettuce here uh-huh. today tomorrow soon and uh, the red butterheads and all the really yummy lettuces come mm-hmm. in a uh, pelletized form. Okay. And it's real easy to sow those blocks. Um, it's a little bit more expensive, but it's worth it. Well, when you consider that you get basically 100% success, uh, the expense doesn't seem that great at all. I'd I'd rather, rather pay a little more for a sure thing than to, uh, you know, plant something that i figure maybe 30 percent of it's going to survive so your experience and your advice is 
Very much worthwhile, James. I always appreciate it. Well, thanks for taking my call, Bob. I sure appreciate talking to you. You have a good Sunday, and I'll look forward to our next visit. Thank you, sir. All right. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. All right. Let's get right back to guarding and back to the phone calls. It's going to be, by the way, the lines are all full now, so uh, um, hang on a couple of minutes before you dial. We're going to talk to Lewis and Grover and Shannon and Leonard, and right now it's Lewis. Good morning, Lewis. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Got a couple Got a couple questions this morning. In fact, James answered one of them, so okay. I'll another one in. <laughs> All right. First one's about soil germinating, seed germinating mix. Uh-huh. I make up my own mix with some core, some sifted compost, some worm castings, and a little bit of that mycorrhizal fungi, that wild root. Uh, if you what put it in a bag, I'll sell it for you. <laughs> that sounds great. I was wondering, because I heard James a couple of weeks ago talking about adding some blood meal and some bone meal and some stuff on top when he was germinating peppers, and I was wondering what, what your experiences have been over the past several years. Was well, it, you anything else into it? You know, I go a little bit differently on that, and it's probably just because it's the way I grew up doing it. I don't really start into a lot of nutrition until the seedlings are up and growing, uh, because mm-hmm. I kind of grew up with my grandfather, we would grow, you know, a, a tray probably had 400 tomato plants and little tray that was, uh, maybe 12 by 18 inches. We took them out, potted them up individually. And when we moved them into their first real taste of soil, that's where we had the fertilizer mixed in. And nowadays mm-hmm. I tend to repot into that and then start hitting them with a good liquid fertilizer. So, uh, my experience is not necessarily better. But I just, um, I feel like the challenge is getting them up and growing. And in the case of some peppers, and I have to say some because it's turning out that some types of peppers are a lot easier to germinate than others. But my challenge is to get as high a percentage of the seed to germinate and get started. So starting out with a basic germinator mix like you're doing, if you're having success with it, I would stay with it. I I just... um and again, I'm not growing hundreds or thousands of plants the way James is. I mean, that man is busy, works all the time, and I'm sure there are times that his little transplants have to stay in those uh, soil blocks. They have to stay in those germination trays a little bit longer than mine do because he's germinating a 1,000 seed, and I'm germinating 30 seeds. So uh, long answer to a short question. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but that's just you know not the way that – I have done it just because my growing style is slightly different, and I'm not going to tell you one's better than the other. I just uh, always tell people, try, and whatever works best for you, that's what you need to be doing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I've used this mix. I really like that core. Oh, me and too. I take a, I've got an old colander. It was my grandma's. I sift that compost out. Yeah. And then add maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe about three or four cups of worm, com- the worm castings to it, and then I've started adding this wild root mycorrhizal over the past couple of years and, yeah. and just let it soak overnight and and back on fix and start after after i hang up i'm gonna listen to the show and sit here and pot up some more seeds very good i got bottom heat and all that in planter. um a, a completely different question if i may i'm i grow blueberries in a large 10 by 20 raised bed and uh-huh. i always lower my have to lower my soil pitch because my water is uh, uh has a lot of magnesium and calcium in it sure I, I use just elemental sulfur. Is there a better way of keeping that pH, you know, in that 
five range other than elemental sulfur? Is there anything else that you've used over the years that's worked better? Well, you know, a lot of people will use an acid. Some people use nitric. Some people will use uh, sulfuric acid. You want to stay away from hydrochloric, of course, because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that the chlorine is not good on things. I... My belief is, and I'm not a blueberry grower, but I've grown a number of acid-loving plants, and I don't believe pH is as important as really the the type of acidity that you're creating. And I believe that if you have a reasonable amount of humic acid and fulvic acid, which are two the nat- natural acids that form in compost, I think if you have a reasonable level of that, you'd be amazed at how well your blueberries will grow at a pH that approaches 7 or maybe even a little bit higher. Right. So the the problem with sulfur, well, two problems with sulfur, in the heat – it turns to sulfur dioxide, which is a defoliant like you wouldn't believe. You want to knock the leaves off plants. You just expose them to some sulfur dioxide, and you look at the areas around old copper smelters of 100 years ago, and there'll be not a speck of vegetation within a mile or two of the smelter. So uh, you have to be real careful with sulfur in the heat. And sulfur is a natural fungicide, and unfortunately it kills out uh, the good fungi as well as the bad fungi. And you know, a little bit of sulfur is fine, but to get enough sulfur in there to really effectively drop the pH, because you're relying on the sulfur to react with water in the soil to form sulfuric acid, H2SO4, if I remember right. And it's just it's a very fine line between having enough sulfur to acidify but not enough sulfur to do any damage. So I... I would perhaps, uh, just as an experiment, you can buy humic acids, and I would do some experimenting with a humic acid. And humic acid is not, and, and again, this is one of the things I've learned over the years. I you know, started out thinking you'd go to the dictionary or whatever and look up the chemical formula of humic acid, but I was talking to Elaine Ingham, who's sort of the mother of microbiology and and compost tea and things, and she said there are probably 100,000 different humic acids depending on what is composting, what's breaking down to form that humic acid. So I would encourage you to experiment a little bit with humic acid as opposed to sulfur, and I think you will grow a healthier plant uh, even though the pH may not be knocked down, you know, pH is a logarithmic scale. Uh, right. pH six is 10 times as acid as seven. pH five is 10 times as acid as six and a hundred times more acidic than seven. You're measuring a free hydrogen, uh, radical is what you're doing. So uh, my, my experience says that the number isn't as important as the type of acid that's in the soil and available to the plants. You know, that's an interesting lineup. Do you, do you make your humic acid or do you buy it in bulk? I've never bought any or made any. Well, you can you can buy it as the easiest thing to do. But if you are using a good, uh, a good rich compost as a mulch, you're going to have all the natural humic acids and all, mm-hmm. you know, going down in. Now, if there was one thing I would encourage you to do, and uh, I don't know the nature of your water, 
But uh, if your water is very alkaline, consider, you know, putting in some rainwater catchment. It's a good idea no matter what. But rainwater is going to be slightly on the acidic side, and that way you're not you're not fighting yourself. If you're dumping pH 8.2 water on, which is what we're doing in the hill country, then you're really having to work hard to bring that pH down if you're watching the numbers. If you're starting with a 6.9, um, or if you're starting with, you know, any water that is either neutral or slightly acidic to begin with, you don't have to do nearly as much acidifying to get the results you're looking for. So I would just suggest that you try using a really good compost as a mulch i would suggest going with rainwater or you know you may have a a source of water that's not so highly alkaline and um it's rather than biohumic acid if you've got good compost you're generating your own okay Okay. but but in effect the water that you're using to extract that makes a lot of difference too okay yeah and i and i understand that and that's i've considered alternate i've got a Farm pond is just too far away to be convenient. Yeah, well, farm pond, though, depending on the soil and depending on the runoff it gets, I know the lake on my ranch, that water is close to being, because it's natural spring water that fills it as well as, uh, it's probably as much spring water as it is rainwater. But um, a farm pond, check your pH, you may find that water's pretty alkaline to begin with. Yeah, mine's all mine's all runoff and actually yeah. I'm not in a calcareous soil, so okay. it's a little, little better situation. Yeah. Good. A whole lot better than me. Good. Let me let me back up to core for just a second though, and I am a big fan of core. And if you have a good source, by all means stay with it. But be aware that some core out there that's being sold uh, has a real high sodium content. It all depends on where that coconut fiber comes from, and that's my only knock against core is that uh, you just need to have a real good source. It's mainly some of the Sri Lankan stuff that comes in a little too salty. So if you've got a good source, uh, stick with it, and if you ever get a bag that has some white crustiness to it, be real careful about using that because you may have more sodium in there than you want. Good advice. Never thought about that. I'll have to check. Check. I've had this for quite a while. Bought a huge brick of box bale of it. Yeah. And broke it up and put it in a five gallon bucket and sealed it up. Good. Good. Well, like James, I've got my carrots. I've got a, some Johnny's Mocha's pelletized carrots fixing going to ground this afternoon. So I do very, very similar like he does. I cover mine with a mix of some sharp sand and compost mix with yeah. crust up and. Gonna get my last tooth in for the for the year this afternoon after I get these seeds planted. You uh you get out and enjoy. It's gonna be a good day for it. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate the advice, especially on the humic acid. You gave me something to read about. Well, Thanks. you let me you let me know how it works out for you. That's the most important thing. Take care, sir. Thanks, Liz. <laughs> Bye. All right. Grover's turn. Good morning, Grover. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh on your Mexican sycamores, I'm wanting to plant some around my barn for yes, sure. Yes, sir. How far, how far away from the barn would you want to plant them where they're not rubbing up against it? If you're, if you're wanting to not have them touch the barn, I would plant them a minimum of 25 feet away, better 35 feet away. 35, okay. Yeah. I was thinking planting two, on, planting two on each side of my barn runs north and south, and that way I can get a little shade in the morning and in the afternoon, too. Well, that would okay. be a, a real good plan. Yeah, that'd be a real good plan. And, you know, 
every Mexican sycamore, every sycamore is different. Some of them are going to be a little more upright. Some of them are going to be a little bit more spreading. If you wind up with one that has the genetics that say, hey, I want to spread out me more of a shade tree, you know, just realize you may have to get your pole pruner out every now and then and trim a little bit no matter how far out you plant. But if you stay 25 feet away, you should have very little problem other than a big windstorm. You should have very little problem right. with them running against the barn. All right. And then the uh, the nursery I hear you talk about sometimes in Victoria. What is the name of it? Earthworks. Earthworks. Would, yeah. they, uh, would they be able to get them? They certainly should be able to. Talk to Laurie over there and... Um, if anybody can find them for you, she can do it. I'll tell you, they're a little hard to get in a reasonable size container. Um, there are some people out there, but our grower in this area, I hate to use the word greedy, but they are. The thing grows so quickly, they want to put it in a 30-gallon container or a 90-gallon container because they can charge a lot more for it than they can in a 5- or a 15-gallon container. So they put so many of their... Mexican sycamores in a pot that a landscaper with a, you know, bobcat or a backhoe can plant those things easily. But you and me that have to pick them up on a trailer and plant them by hand, we don't want to go much bigger than a 15-gallon tree. And that's what makes them a little bit harder to find. But uh, give Laurie a little advance warning. I'll bet she can find them for you. Okay. All right. Well, good deal, Bob. And I'll let you move on to other calls. I appreciate that. You have a great weekend, Grover. Thank you, sir. You too, though. Thanks. Bye. And Shannon's up first. Good morning. Morning, Shannon. Uh, Mr. Bob. Hey, yes, sir. I had a question. You always talked about the molasses and the water mixture for killing cactus. Is right. It one cup for five gallons, or what is it? No, it's got to be stronger than that. And remember, the cactus has to be broken free from the ground. Uh, you don't just go out and spray a cactus patch. It'll probably grow better than ever. But once you break it loose from the ground, what the cactus is doing is just making it rot, or the molasses is doing, it's just making the cactus rot so quickly it doesn't uh, sprout and regrow. And I would be using it probably... About three parts water to one part molasses. You can make it even a little stronger if you want because it doesn't take a whole lot of it. A gallon or two of that mix will spray a big pile of cactus pads. Awesome, awesome. And the other quick question I had, uh, we've got earlier this uh, earlier in the fall, you talked about, I think if I'm not mistaken, they're a white plant, and somebody was asking you if, they're, if they get real big, like is it called a uh, uh, vanilla verbena? Uh, a lemon verbena, probably lemon verbena. It's actually uh, has very, very fragrant white flowers, and um, it, the flowers come in sort of a spike. The one, we have one that's been growing uh, in one of the beds at our nursery for probably 10 years, and it's about 10 or 12 feet tall. Uh, the thing that makes that one, and this is the year I'm going to start propagating some of it, now that I have a home greenhouse to do that, but ours never freezes back. Most lemon verbenas freeze back and then come back, and uh, ours actually fell over in an ice storm a few years ago, and that we had to cut it back substantially when we when we got it back up and growing again. But I'm going to tell you, um, height's going to vary somewhere between eight and fifteen feet, just depending on whether it freezes back or not. We've got it on the ranch. I take care of a ranch; it's about sixteen hundred acres. Uh-huh. And they're like lice out there. Between them and the mountain laurels, you couldn't kill them if you wanted to. Very good. Well, yeah, and you're sure it's a lemon verbena because there are a couple of other native plants that look a lot like it, 
But uh, there's nothing that has. You'll smell that lemon verbena. You'll smell it from 100 feet away when it's in bloom. I think it is because the bees go to it like, like butter. Between, okay. between that and um, the, the mountain laurels, they love them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the other thing I'll tell you about lemon verbena, um, and I'm trying to remember, uh, gosh, I just, it doesn't pop into my head the name of the similar native plant, but uh, it will bloom off and on for several months at a time, whereas the native ones that look somewhat like it normally bloom for three or four weeks, and that's about it. Uh, true lemon verbena will stay in bloom most all summer. Yes. Gotta be, that's gotta be uh, you're a fortunate man to have that much of it around, and you have some very happy bees. We and it's the soil that it grows in is rockier than hell. I mean, it's nasty soil, but they really love it. Don't you love plants that are that tough and hardy? I love them to death. I, I sure appreciate it, Bob. Well, I appreciate you taking such good care of your land, Shannon. It's a real blessing to be able to be the steward of a place and a real responsibility. So you keep up the good work, and we'll talk again. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Shannon. Bye. All right, Leonard's up next. Good morning, Leonard. Hello, Leonard. Bunch it one more time. Leonard, are you there? Let's go back to hold, and then let's come back to, let's see here, back to hold, and then back to Leonard. Uh, are you there, Leonard? Okay, I'll get Kareem to check and be sure Leonard is there right now. Let's talk to Virgil. Good morning, Virgil. Morning, sir. Morning. Um, I went to the pruning piece at Fannix yesterday. Okay, very good. And one of the things he said, I, I, just, I don't think that's something you've recommended, but I, I'd want to get your opinion that when you plant a new tree, cut it off to like 12 to 18 inches. So cut the top off so it's only got 12 or 18 inches worth of uh, stock. And okay. then trim the tips of the roots well that's you're in favor of i that's not how i would do it on most trees now uh there are some trees which are naturally going to be you know a higher crowned tree and there are some trees that you want to branch down pretty low uh trees like peaches I'm going to try to grow them shaped like a martini glass if I can. I want them branched low, and I want them spread out. And so I'm going to cut the trunk on that young tree back to the point that I want it to branch. And I, in my orchard, I'm never going to have something with branches 18 inches off the ground. I'm going to have it 24 to 36 inches off the ground. And on a pear tree or something like that, they could be even higher so I I would not be in favor of uh, you know of cutting them back that far. As far as roots, um, I would cut out any roots that are dead, and I certainly would cut any girdling or circling roots. But I'm not a big fan of root pruning unless there's a reason for it. I mean, it's something to do in bonsai culture, but. In my opinion, it's not something that I would do in growing fruit trees. But, you know, A&M and I have different opinions on a number of things, and I guess that's one of them. Yeah. What would you do with a fig tree? With a what? Fig tree. Oh, a fig tree? You know, I think a fig tree is much better as a big bush than it is as a tree because figs are basically weak-wooded, and unless they are in a very protected area— 
Uh, anything that is grown tree-like in a fig is going to break in the first big windstorm. Uh, and figs are not grafted. I don't think I've ever seen a grafted fig, and I've seen a lot of figs. So we don't worry about things sprouting out from the base. And I would encourage it. You know, a fig tree, if it's got a tall, you know, skinny trunk growing up, yeah, I'm going to cut it back to, you know, maybe two or three feet, something like that, just to encourage it to spread out from the base. But I'm not going to, I mean, with a with a peach tree, I'm going to be very structured, so to speak, in the way I create the structure of that tree. I want a tree that branches about 30 to 36 inches up. I want either three or four major limbs radiating out like the spokes of a wheel. I mean, I can grow you on paper exactly draw you on paper exactly what I want my peach tree to look like, but that's not the case with figs. With a fig tree, I just want a big bush that produces lots of figs. So uh, the pruning on a fig is much more general. The pruning on a peach tree or even a plum tree is much more specific. Okay. So I will leave it alone and just put it in the ground. <laughs> I think that many times Mother Nature knows best. Uh, uh, most important thing is get it in the ground properly. Be certain that you're not burying the root flare on it. That's another thing that A&M fails to recognize, or I should say the Extension Service fails to recognize. A lot of the people do is the importance of uh, you know having that root flare exposed. I know a lot of these guys tell you to bury it up as deep as a graft point, and let me tell you, that tree will grow twice as quickly bear twice as much with uh, many fewer problems uh, if you have that root flare exposed, even if that means leaving the graft point four to six inches above the ground. I think it's by far the only way to go. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate the call. Thank you, Virgil. Goodbye. Kay is up first. Good morning, Kay. Hi, Bob. Good morning. Um, would you remind me how to propagate a rose? Roses are grown usually from cuttings. If you want to take some cuttings at this time of year, it's fine. That's what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you need to get your cuttings before the new growth starts, and that can start as early as February. So uh, the root parts that are going to root best are going to be the tips of the limbs, usually about three to four inches long. You want to take your cuttings. Uh, if there are any buds or blooms or seed pods, go ahead and cut those off. But uh, take off the lower leaf or two. You should probably leave two sets of leaves above uh, your rooting medium. But just take a bunch of cuttings. I would soak those cuttings in a mixture of water and liquid seaweed, maybe oh, four or five tablespoons liquid seaweed in a quart of water, and soak them for about between 15 and 30 minutes. I would use perlite is probably the best rooting medium. If you were to take, uh, say, an 8-inch pot and fill it, clean 8-inch pot, fill it with perlite, you could put about 20, 25 cuttings in one pot. Keep them bright but not in direct sun. Keep them wet. It's impossible to keep uh, perlite too wet. And if possible, put them on a propagating mat, something where you have a source of bottom heat. Uh, the plants don't have to be so warm themselves, but if you have bottom heat, they'll sure root a lot faster. You do want to protect them from freezing. This time of year, it should probably take about six to eight weeks to get some pretty good roots started at that point. Pot them up into some soil in smaller pots, and by mid-spring, you'll have a nice plant to set out in the garden. So you're putting them in solid perlite, no no soil in there. No. you When you introduce soil, you bring in uh, some microbes that see it as their, 
their purpose to break down anything that is, you know, not active, vibrant, living tissue. When you put them into perlite or you can use just clean sand, you have none of these decomposing microbes. So it gives your cuttings a much better chance to get started. Uh, if you put them in soil, I know our grandmothers used to be able to do it, and sometimes you'll get away with doing it. But uh, rooting in perlite, you have about a 98% chance of getting good things to root. Rooting in soil, you have maybe a 10% chance. And about how long did you say that you leave it in the perlite? Well, it long enough to form some good roots. This time of year, that's probably going to be six to eight weeks. Middle of the summer, it might be three weeks. But uh, just the the better care you take, the warmer you keep that root system, the faster it's going to root out. And, um, you know, we're sitting here mid to late January. You should have some nice rooty cuttings by early March. Okay. All right. So I need to leave them outside somewhere on a propagating mat, not not in the house. Well, you can keep them in the house in a sunny window. But remember, the air inside your home is very dry. Our heating these days is very much dehumidifying, and these little cuttings would like the humidity higher. Now, if you had a giant empty fish aquarium or something like that, that you could put your cuttings down on the propagating mat in there and cover about 90% of the top there to help keep the humidity up, that would be fine. But just the, the super dry air inside uh, will the plants just don't like it as much as they like the more humid uh, natural air. Okay, so they're outside. They're on a propagating mat. It doesn't matter. I mean, like right now, it's pretty cold outside. Is I would not let them get below freezing. But right now, it's probably, I'm guessing, about 38, 39 degrees. And that root system is going to be at about 72 degrees if it's sitting on a propagating mat. And uh, that's what they want. They want warm feet and a cool top. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. You're sure welcome. Good luck with the K. What kind of roses are you rooting? I don't know. It's I don't know what it's called. My neighbor has it, and she's sold her property, and she's going to move. And it's a it's not a, a metabolus, but it's okay. a rose. It's, it's a big rose, but it starts out dark like red, uh-huh. and then it starts turning colors like it gets an orange, and then it almost gets kind of yellowish in the middle, and it has a strong. Uh, wonderful smell to well, it. Well, sounds like a great one to propagate. Uh, the only reason I ask, there is one rose, the Lady Banks rose. There's a yellow form and a white form. That one is very difficult to root. What you're describing sounds like a regular hybrid rose, and you should be very successful with it. I hope so. Thanks for mm. all your help. Always a pleasure, Kay. Thank you for the call this morning. <laughs> Goodbye. You're welcome. All right. Uh, only a few seconds till news. Carl is up first after the news, then Ron, then Janie. And then whoever grabs line number one up there, this is KTSA Radio in beautiful San Antonio, Texas.